it's a silly name, and I didn't choose it, but I will embrace it proudly. Um, I'm one of the elders, pastors on staff at Missio Church, and um, my, my wife and kids are here this morning. My daughter's seven, my son is five, and I was trying to explain to them this morning how we're going to renovation church and explaining the partnership that Missio has with the renovation. And so I explained to my kids that if churches were elementary school students, Renovation Church would be Missio Church's best friend, all right? We would be BFFs, that's what we would be. Uh, the myriad of ways that we um, partner together and share leadership and encourage one another, strengthen one another, um, I, I can't even begin to scratch the surface uh, of all those things. So it's great to be uh, worshiping with um, our BFF this morning. So uh, we're going to continue this series through Matthew And we're in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. That's Matthew 4, 12 through 17. I'm going to read the passage, if you could uh, follow along. That's Matthew 4, verses 12 and following. This is the word of the Lord. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth... He went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we do thank you for uh, this time to gather as your people, to worship you, to praise you, to rejoice in our salvation. And we pray as we consider uh, this text this morning that uh, you would Incline our hearts. Lord, open our eyes. Give us understanding. Satisfy us with your word and with your promises. Father, we entrust this time to you now, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So, uh, I moved around a lot. Growing up, I was born in a small city-ish place called Cumberland, Cumberland, Maryland. Uh, Lived then in New Creek, West Virginia, matter of fact, on Pancake Road on a 1,500-acre dairy farm until I was one, then moved to Pittsburgh, where my mom was originally from, lived there in various suburbs until the age of 12, and then we moved to Coral Springs, Florida. That's on the east coast of Florida near Fort Lauderdale. Lived there from ages 12 to 16 when I moved to the west coast of Florida, Gulf of Mexico, in Naples, Florida, where I graduated high school, junior, senior year, went to Gulf Coast High School, and then went to Florida Gulf Coast University. Now, I lived in Florida, southwest Florida, for 12 years, Florida in general, 17 years, so all my adolescent adult life there, until six and a half years ago, I moved to what Mike Maisie would call the greatest city in the world, Syracuse, New York, 
um, and we love it here. We moved here six and a half years ago to join the staff at Missio Church. So um, if I, I, I went back and calculated, and it was a tough exercise, memory's a bit foggy, but I calculated that um, I lived in 12 to 15 different houses, 8 to 10 different towns, four different states, and growing up I went to eight different schools. Now, the house I'm living in, in Eastwood, in the city of Syracuse, I've lived there just over four years. That makes it the longest house I've ever lived in in my entire life. And so all this moving around uh, certainly had an impact on me and had an impact on others as well. I mean, I think of the impact on me. Uh, You're the new kid in school, and so uh, you have a goofy last name, Pancake, and so, of course, you're going to be a bit outgoing. You're going to learn how to make friends quick, or you'll be sitting alone at the cafeteria table. And so I I think it helped shape my um, extroverted personality. I also think, um, you know, when you're moving around that much, you try to control any little bit of your plot and your world that you can control. And so I think that's what makes me a bit of a type A OCD, like everything has its place, everything goes in that place. When things are out of place, I get on edge a bit. And so it kind of shaped that as well. And I'm confident that it had an impact on other people that we interacted with as well as I developed friendships, and we interacted with different churches and people, uh, etc. But my moves, and if you moved around a lot, even your moves, pale in comparison to the move, pale in comparison to the impact of the move that we see in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Uh, You could say that Jesus' move from Judea to Galilee from Nazareth to Capernaum was the single most impactful move in human history. Wouldn't be an exaggerated statement. The single most impactful move in all of her history. Now, it certainly impacted the people in, around Capernaum and in Galilee, but it also impacted all people for all of Time. This move that we see in our passage, it marks the start of Jesus' public ministry. And we'll see that this moved, it marked, it became the dawn of a great light. So here's the main idea Jesus' ministry in Galilee, or Jesus' move to Galilee, is the dawn of the great light for all people. Jesus' ministry in Galilee, or his move to Galilee, is the dawn of the great light for all people. And we're going to see three things in these six verses. We're going to see the move, we're going to see the morning dawn, and we're going to see the message. The move, the morning dawn, and the message. All right, let's consider the move first. Jesus in Galilee. Verse 12 of Matthew 4. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, right out of the gate, verse 12, we see that uh, John had been arrested. This is John the Baptist. He'd been arrested. And this signifies to Jesus that it's time to, to use the word from verse 12, to withdraw. Now, some commentators would say, 
Um, Jesus notices that John the Baptist gets arrested, and so Jesus kind of puts his hand in his pocket and just kind of skirts on back to the shadows as it wasn't his time to, to be arrested yet. Now, maybe there's a case to be made for that. I don't know if it's that compelling. We, we know that Jesus moves to Galilee, sure, but Herod ruled Galilee as well. I don't know if there was much protection there. Uh, but regardless, this, this arrest of John the Baptist, it signifies to Jesus that John the Baptist's ministry is now formally ended, and now Jesus' public ministry is about to formally begin. John's work, which was described in Matthew 3, um, that was in the wilderness. But Jesus' public ministry is going to start in Galilee. Now, in these two verses, we see five places named. That's significant. Five places named. We see Galilee, Nazareth, Capernaum, Zebulun, Naphtali. So Galilee, first we'll start with that. That's in the north. Okay, so you had Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Those were regions. Think um, Binghamton region, Cortland, Syracuse region. All right, that's, that's how it, it went. And Galilee's up there, and it says that Jesus left Nazareth. Nazareth was in Judea, and he moved to Capernaum. Capernaum was in Galilee. Now, Galilee was a pretty small place, but had fertile land, a lot of trade opportunities, a lot of Gentiles were there. And so it was a a booming area at the time. In fact, one historian had said that Judea is on the way to nowhere, but Galilee is on the way to everywhere. Now, it wouldn't be fair to the people in Binghamton if we said Binghamton is on the way to nowhere. And Syracuse is on the way to everywhere. But nonetheless, that would be the parallel. (laughs) Judea, on the way to nowhere. Galilee, on the way to everywhere. So a lot of opportunities, a a growing area, fertile land. And it says that Jesus resided in a particular location in Galilee, a place named Capernaum. Now, Capernaum, little is known about it. We know that it's, it's by the sea. It's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And we know that some of Jesus' disciples were from there. Peter, Andrew, John, James. And this passage also tells us, in verse 13, that it's part of the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali. Now, Zebulun and Nephtali, uh, who are they? Well, those are ancient tribes of Israel. And that's where they resided like back in the day, like further back than Jesus' time. And Zebulun and Nephtali are only mentioned three times, three times in the New Testament, twice in our passage, verse 13 and verse 15. The other time is in Revelation chapter 7. Now, who cares where Zebulun and Nephtali resided? Matthew, why is that important? Well, Matthew's going to use that to explain that Jesus' move His relocation from Nazareth to Capernaum in Galilee is a fulfillment of a prophecy 700 years before Jesus' time. Okay, so that's the move, Jesus in Galilee. Now let's consider the morning dawn, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Matthew 4 verse 14 it says that Jesus moved to Capernaum 
and the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali. Verse 14 says, so that, in order that, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then Matthew is going to quote Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. You can see it in Matthew 4, verses 15 and 16. The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. End quote. So Jesus is say, or Matthew is saying that Jesus has moved from Judea to Galilee. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, it might have been expected that uh, Jesus would make his base of operations at the capital city, Jerusalem. But Jesus spent most of his time in his public ministry in despised Galilee. Why is it despised? There's a lot of Gentiles there, non-Jews there. There were a lot of Jews there, but there were a lot of non-Jews there as well. And this was in order to fulfill a divine purpose. All right, so what was then that prophecy? Well, I, I want to introduce the prophecy um, by way of a small, silly illustration that I had heard recently. So uh, imagine yourself, you're 12 years old. Now, for some of you, that's easier to do than others. You're 12 years old. And you're hanging out with a bunch of friends at your friend's house. You didn't come to Renovation Church on Halloween night. You're at your friend's house on Halloween night. It's dark, and there's, let's call it thunder snow. Like, it's snowing, and there's thunder, and there's lightning. And all of you all, um, as you're hanging out at your friend's house, you're uh, telling scary stories. You know, you got the sound effects, the oohs and the ahs. You got the flashlight underneath the chin. I mean, all that stuff is happening. You're down in the basement doing that, and all of a sudden, you hear a thunderclap. You see lightning flash, and the lights go out. People start to lose their ever-loving mind. They're already on edge. They're already panicked. Hearts pounding. Anxieties forming in the brain. And then one of your friends looks up out through that basement window, and they're convinced that they see someone in a hood, wearing a jacket, with an axe in their hand. Well, now everyone is freaking out. There's danger. There's distress. There's a threat. And then all of a sudden, the lights flicker back on. Parents burst into the room. And what was a real threat now is diminished. It's gone. And everyone is safe and secure. This is a silly picture here of the prophecy that Isaiah was making in his time. So 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah stated that in the most northern part of Galilee, where Capernaum is, around there, God's king would come. And the presence of God's king would be like the lights coming on. That a real threat would be diminished. 
and that things would begin to be safe and secure. Distress, danger, that foreboding threat, gone as the lights come back on. In verse 16 of Matthew 4, I'm going to read the the statement again. It says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So twice in that verse, darkness turns to wonderful light. The imagery there, it's evocative. It's, um, to use the phrase, the shadow of death in the Bible, I mean, that that conjures up an image of sorrow, terror, uh, extreme danger, deep, deep distress. Now, I'll picture a tiny nation Militarily very weak. And one of the world's superpowers is marching against them with their vast and powerful armies. And the intention of this superpower is to wipe this tiny nation off the face of the map. Total obliteration. Complete annihilation. And as that tiny nation considers its future, as they consider its future, their future looks like a Category 5 hurricane. It's just coming right at them. You've seen it, right, on the news. I told you I lived in Florida. We were used to this. A hurricane's coming. You don't want to be in that cone. But imagine, I mean, this tiny nation, they're right in the center of the cone. A Cat 5 hurricane is coming, and the, and the hurricane, it's not going to wobble. It's not going to turn. 100% certainty. The tiny nation is going to experience a direct hit. And as they consider their future, the only thing that exists in their future is a massive storm surge with wind and rain. And maybe, okay, the storm surge comes and, and the water starts to come up, maybe, maybe to their knees, and then up to their chest. And so then they climb to higher ground or they, they get on a building. But as the wind comes and the rain pours down and the flood waters rise, the building is going to collapse. Terror, heartache, and then gasping for air only to eventually succumb to death. That's what it's like to dwell in the shadow of death. To to have that type of distress and turmoil and emotional angst as your constant companion in life. And to the people in Isaiah's time, that was their terrifying reality. 
the tiny nation was Israel. The mighty superpower was Assyria. It was the year 733 BC, and Assyria was marching towards them with their vast armies, with total obliteration in mind, barreling towards the region of Zebulun and Nephtali, getting ready to carry those people into captivity. But here, back in Matthew 4, Matthew picks up on that prophecy, picks up on that passage in Isaiah, but then what he does is he begins to apply it much more broadly. So for the people in Isaiah's time, the threat was Assyria. What Matthew's saying is, no, 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 it's not just the people of Israel any longer. It's not just that tiny nation, but all people for all time, they dwell in darkness. For all people for all time, they live in the shadow of death. Jews and Gentiles alike dwelling in darkness, living in the shadow of of death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, a well-known verse. It says this, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's Hebrews' version of some, somewhat of what Matthew's doing here in chapter 4. With my, I mentioned I had young kids, so a few nights a week, at the end of dinner, we're, we're reading the Bible together, and then we're doing these catechisms. And so uh, they go like, who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How do we glorify God? Love and obey him. Well, fast forward, we're on like 29, 30, 31. We're, we're that, that far in now. And the ones we've, we've reviewed the last couple weeks go like this. What effect did the sin of Adam have on all mankind? The answer, and it's... Interesting to hear my kids recited in their cute little voices, but talking about sin and misery. They say, all mankind is born in a state of sin and misery. Next question, what do we inherit from Adam as a result of this original sin? A sinful nature. And here's the one we're working on this week. What does every sin deserve? The anger and judgment of God. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The the anger and judgment of God. How does that relate to Matthew? Matthew, in quoting Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, he's saying that all people are dwelling in darkness. All people live in the shadow of death. What is the shadow of death? What is that darkness? Mankind deserves the anger and judgment of God. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That is mankind's terrifying future and reality. Then he says, that Jesus, the coming of Jesus, is a great light to that threat. Jesus coming is the dawn of a great light making us safe and secure from that terrifying reality. The Bible 
Most often, Jesus himself, in describing hell, the judgment of God, uses more evocative imagery, explaining it as um, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It, It pictures a place where people are cursing their creator, where people are crying for mountains to fall on top of them because it would be easier to suffocate to death than to face the judgment of God. Matthew's reminding us here that that's a place we all are headed apart from the great light. You do believe that about yourself, don't you? You do believe that about your family members, friends, loved ones who are apart from Christ. This is one of the reasons why we want to and and ought to and are inclined to share the gospel, the good news of this great light with those who have not trusted in him. But hear this church, Jesus is the great light. And when he arrived on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, and he makes that move to Galilee, Matthew's saying that's the dawn of it. That's the dawn of this great light. It's the start of a new day. There's hope there in the midst of living in the shadow of death. There's hope there in the midst of dwelling in darkness. He's brought a new dawn and hope to a dark place. Now, the Bible also tells us to consider a future and consider a world where there is no more darkness, no more pain, no more heartache, no more tears, no more disease, no more evil. A new world of love and peace and life and joy, a world in which God is honored as he should be. That world is called, in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew's saying that that kingdom was inaugurated, it was started, it it dawned when Jesus made the move to Galilee. Now, we know that the Son won't reach its high point, its zenith in the sky, until Christ returns. But you can confidently say that that world has dawned in Jesus. There is now a light in the darkness, and that light has a name. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. A few verses later, In Isaiah chapter 9, that same chapter that Matthew was quoting, in verses 6 and 7, listen to these words. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is Isaiah talking about Jesus being the dawn of the great light. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
this is what Matthew is trying to reveal to us about Jesus. Jesus is moving his base of operation to Galilee and the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And that fulfills a prophecy that Jesus is the dawn of the great light. He has come to save us from the shadow of death and to save us from dwelling in darkness. That's where our bleak future leads apart from Christ, which then leaves all of mankind with a choice. And Jesus communicates that choice in verse 17. We've seen the move. We've seen the uh, morning dawn. And now we're going to see the message. It's found in verse 17 of Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has dawned. Now, this is the exact same phrasing, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that Mike taught on just a few weeks ago. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Same exact phrase. I would encourage you to go back, if you weren't here that Sunday, to listen to that. He did an excellent job uh, explaining repent and what that meant for each and every one of us uh, in 2019. And so I don't want to repeat what Mike said all of that. Just a brief reminder, that word repent, it's a, it's a 180. It's a, it's a military term. It means about face. It's a turning away. It's a turning away from our sin. It's a turning away from that bleak future of darkness. And it's turning to the great light, Jesus. And Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said it to them at the start of his public ministry. Don't miss that. The very first words of his public ministry are this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says it then to that original audience, and he says it to us today. Everyone, again, to use the language of Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4, everyone dwelling in darkness. We're the people, apart from Jesus, dwelling in darkness. We're the people living in the shadow of death. So we're faced with a choice. And we can turn to the great light. Enter into the kingdom of heaven. Find safety. Security. Salvation. We're in the center of the cone. The Cat 5 hurricane is coming right towards us. And Jesus says, there's a way to escape it. It's me. Turn to me, the great light. Well, you say, I'm not that bad. My actions, I wouldn't call them dark. Jesus says, don't be a fool. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whether you see it clearly or not, you are living in the shadow of death. You are dwelling in darkness. He says, compared to my holiness, your greatest, most righteous acts are like filthy rags. You might say, well, I'll I'll do it tomorrow. He says, don't be a fool. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do not presume upon the grace of God. 
that you would be given breath tomorrow for the very breath we take is God's gift to us. Today is the day to turn to the great light. And say, I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to ride this one out. Jesus says, don't be a fool. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, I'm the king of heaven. Memorizing Psalm 9, and uh, David is praising God because the way of the wicked will perish. He said, the wicked, they, they turn back. He says that they're, they're obliterated before God's very presence. He says their cities are rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And then for the Christian who can very easily find oneself taking one's place in the kingdom of heaven for granted, I mean, you, we're kidding, right? We were dead. We were dwelling in darkness. We were in the shadow of death. Think of the language from Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul writes to that early church. He says "You in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sin. Like we weren't just kind of treading water, need a little, a little boost, like dead, dead, not breathing, dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and here's this one, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's way of saying... You were living in the shadow of death. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then verse 4, we have the word but. But God. But God. Now there's hope. Now there was no Chick-fil-A in central New York. But God. Hope, right? Hope. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's raised us up with him. He's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. People of God, If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in the great light, then may we rejoice in this salvation. Yeah, we'll respond in singing, and that's partly how we rejoice. And we rejoice as we go from this place and live faithful lives of worship, pointing others to the dawn of the great light. And if you haven't, turned to the great light. I implore you, 
find safety, find security, find salvation in the great light, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful news. The very powerful way that Matthew connects our eternal standing and our bleak future apart from Christ to the prophecy in Isaiah 9. And as Jesus made this move into Galilee and and began his public ministry, Matthew's right to point out that that is the dawn of a great light. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for hope. We thank you for what Psalm chapter 2 verse 12 says, blessed are all who take refuge in you. Father, we as your people now rejoice in Jesus. We rejoice and our salvation. And we sing praise to your name, O Most High. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.